This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So I have to think that Ashley Vance, you know, hey, that's his walk-in music in, in, in some ways. <laughs> his doorbell. Uh, given everything his that ringtone. he's written about. We have many, many things to talk to him about, not the least of which is his story in the most recent edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Ashley is a feature writer for the magazine. He joins us on the phone from Palo Alto, California. Joel Weber, the editor of the magazine, is here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. All right, so a small rocket maker running a different kind of space race. Ashley, all eyes on space, it feels like, these days. Uh, tell us about this guy. Yeah, well, so there's these company, guys. <laughs> these say. guys, yeah. Uh, it's a company called Astra, and they're based in... Alameda, California, which is just kind of right next door to Oakland in San Francisco. And for the last three years, they've been building a what's meant to be a, a small, cheap rocket pretty much in, in secret until we did the story. So, Ashley, the, the, what, talk about the model that they're trying to develop here. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, for a long time, space was obviously kind of controlled by uh, a handful of governments that had big, expensive rockets that didn't launch very often. And then Elon came around with SpaceX and, and made a, a big, expensive rocket that launched more often. And what these guys want to do is they're part of this whole class of startups that want to build much smaller rockets that instead of costing $60 million or $100 million per launch, cost anywhere from one to seven million dollars per launch and so they can't take as much stuff but they get you to space much more cheaply and the idea is that they may be able to launch instead of once a month maybe as much as every single day and so it's it's you know i put it in the story this idea of becoming like the fedex for space right sustainability comes to the space uh industry what's interesting is astra right was among a few finalists um they beat out some really well-known competitors we're talking about virgin and some others right yeah, there's this DARPA, the, the kind of R&D arm of the Defense Department, is sponsoring one of these. They do these grand challenges for various things, and, and so they have this thing called the Launch Challenge, and the whole idea was to get all these small rocket startups to compete against each other to see who could launch two rockets in a very short span of time, a few weeks in between the launches. And, and Dozens of companies applied to be in this. Virgin was one of the, the three finalists as the list got whittled down in another company called Vector. And so Vector went out of business last year and Virgin pulled out of the competition. And so now Astra is the, the last rocket maker standing. So Ashley, another uh, part that I'm kind of interested in here is like where they are in their trials, because this is like, it's not a foregone conclusion that this is all gonna go their way. No, not at all. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is this business is hard. SpaceX took years. 
it, yeah, you know, they blew up, they blew up their yeah. first three rockets before they, they finally got one to work. And so, um, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning, Astra's been operating in secret, but I've been following them um, during this whole journey. And so they have actually already flown two rockets from uh, a spaceport in Alaska that, that's kind of run by the government. And both of those ended quite badly. <laughs> the rockets uh, came back to Earth before they were supposed to. And, and this new rocket is, you know, they spent the last year revamping it, making it bigger, redoing the engines. And so in February, late February, they're going to make another attempt to go to orbit. But again, like you said, I mean, this, this may not work. And if it doesn't work, they're under a lot of pressure because there is a company in New Zealand called Rocket Lab um, that's been doing very, very well and has been launching all the time. And Ashley, you know this world so well from so much reporting that, that you've done. I mean, where are we in sort of the the development of this industry, as it were? Is this, we're still at the stage where a, a lot of flowers are going to bloom, as they say, and ultimately there will be consolidation? Has there already been consolidation? What does this look like as we go through the next five to ten years, in your estimation? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny. You know, so when... SpaceX finally sort of hit its stride. I mean, it opened up this idea that, okay, individuals and, and private companies can finally get rockets to space. And so there's been this flood of startups who, are, who have come in and tried to prove they can build a rocket and all this money that's come in. But it's, it's completely unclear that there is a market for this many rockets and, and the need to launch a rocket every day. The, well, yeah, to that end, like, who do they see being potential customers? Yeah, yeah I mean, the big driver for this is that that traditionally satellites were things that took like 10 years to build. They cost a billion dollars each and they were about the size of a car or a bus and, and you just launched it and you left it up there for a long time. But now there's, there's literally, you know, anywhere from like, it's probably about a hundred um, satellite startups that have much smaller satellites about the size of a basketball. And they want to put up hundreds, if not tens of thousands of these satellites for all kinds of tasks, imaging the earth, connecting, you know, the internet of things, all these devices, creating sort of space-based internet networks. Um, and so the whole theory is that these small rocket companies will serve these small satellite makers, and you'll just right. have these rockets going up every day, taking new satellites right. into orbit. But we don't know. We only know, we don't know if the business case for these satellites will work. We don't know how many of these companies will survive, or how many rockets will be needed to do all this. Okay, so what is it about these guys and their technology? Like, what what's been the breakthrough that that uh, you know makes them the one to watch? That so. So if Rocket Lab's kind of the gold standard right now for these small rocket makers, you know, and it charges about $7.5 million per launch. It has this beautiful rocket that's made of carbon fiber and, and all those 3D printed engines and everything. Astra wants to be the low end of all this. So they're using really kind of like no breakthrough techniques. They're, they're using aluminum. Um, everything in the machine shop is, is sort of techniques that have been perfected for years, but their whole pitch is that they'll be the first ones who get mass manufacturing of these types of things down and actually get the cost instead of 7.5 million, they want to get it down to like a million per right. launch. And so price would be their, their big weapon, I guess. Ashley, just got about a minute left. Got to ask you, you wrote the book on Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX, and the quest for a fantastic future. We'd be remiss. What do you make of Tesla 
um, just, you know, shooting to the moon, no pun intended. It's up another 20%. Just got about 45 seconds. What do you make of what we're seeing this year when it comes to Elon Musk? I mean, it's kind of amazing because this time last year, it looked like the whole thing was going to go under. And (laughs) and that's what everyone was asking me. And so, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's, it's sort of crazy. It's hard to put into words. I mean... To me, if you look at it now, they've obviously got their house in order a lot better, but but people are clearly betting that, that this is like much more than a car. If you believe this valuation, you're sort of believing in a, a future where Tesla is an energy company and taking right. over the electric car market. And so, I don't know, it's, it's a little hard for me to, to, yeah. to fully buy in where it is right now, but they, they're doing much better. Forward-looking PE of 95. What's wrong with that? Oh my Just going to say, check out Ashley's book, Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX, and the Quest for a Fantastic Future. And of course, check out the magazine. Uh, that story going to be featured when it hits uh, newsstands later uh, this week. It's already at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal. Our thanks to Ashley Vance, joining us from California on the phone. Jill Webb Our thanks to him as well, Bloomberg Business Week editor in our interactive broker studio. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week here on a Monday afternoon. Andy Brown with us, editorial director for Bloomberg New Economy. His column, I have to say, is a must read every week, especially at a time where we are fascinated and have to be with the nexus of the U.S. and China in the broader global economy. And that really took an interesting turn when it comes to Huawei recently with a country with which the United States has traditionally had a quote unquote special relationship. Got a little less special uh, or a little more complicated (laughs) complicated, to say the least. Uh, Andy, he's here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio talking about Boris Johnson, newly uh, freed up, newly Brexited, and he's saying, Huawei, yeah, we'll do a deal with you. Uh, Donald Trump, sorry about that. Exactly. The relationship is now a little bit less special. It was only a few years ago under the Cameron government that the British were talking about the golden age of relations between the U- between the United Kingdom uh, and China. And that certainly uh, had a bearing on the outcome of this decision. Look, this is really, I think, a historical turning point. Um, the White House was warning, was, was issuing these warnings about uh, Huawei in almost, you know, apocalyptic terms, right? The message to friends, to allies was, if you go with Huawei, Huawei, you must be mad, right? So Matt Pottinger, who runs China at National Security Council, uh, used a Cold War analogy. He said, can you imagine in the middle of the Cold War, Reagan and Thatcher getting together and say, hey, how about this for an idea? Let's get the KGB to build our comms networks and, 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 and get a cut price uh, on, on the deal, right? Crazy. Crazy, right? So, and Britain takes all this on board. Boris Johnson hears this and was like, "Yeah, we get it. We understand. Huawei is a risk. We're only going to let them, but we're going to we're going to let them in, right?" Um, and and I think this idea that I mean, it was Henry Kissinger at our New Economy Forum right. just a few months ago was warning that we are in the foothills right. of a new Cold War. Well, you know, maybe we're always going to remain in the foothills because it's really going to be incredibly difficult for the United. States to put together a coalition of friends and allies to have a Cold War with China. The world is not working that way anymore. 
Right. Limiting, if it ever did. Right. Limiting the flow of technology in and out of China. It just, it, 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 it can't, it's not possible at sure. this point. So the UK, so the UK is, well, UK is saying several things. First of all, it's too expensive. They already have Huawei gear embedded in their 3G, 4G network. So if they're going to go with Huawei on 5G, it means they have to rip all that out. And then they're going to have to pay more for presumably Ericsson or Nokia networks. Plus, and here's the killer thing, uh, it's going to offend China. If you're the United States, you can take on China. You can stand up to China. We've seen that, right? right. Donald Trump, the White House, take on China. We're going to have a trade war with China. If you're the UK, you cannot do that. They need a trade deal with China just as they need a trade deal with the United States. Now they're out of the EU. Now you imagine this. This is Britain. This is, as you say, the special relationship, America's closest ally. If you are a Singapore or a you know Philippines or a smaller, uh, weaker country, more distant from the United States, you're looking at this and you're you're also weighing your alliances, your allegiances, and which way you're going to go if you're going to be asked to choose. I also thought it was interesting, Andy, in your um, column, how you also wrote about Britain really knowing Huawei better than anyone else, that they have really looked at this company from a bunch of different angles, correct? They've ripped, they've ripped apart all the software. They haven't found anything in the software. In fact, nobody has any hard evidence that Huawei has backdoors or that it is you know, actively planning sabotage or surveillance. Um, the issue really is its relationship with the Chinese state. Would Huawei, if asked, act on behalf of the Chinese Communist Party? And Huawei will say definitively no. The rest of the world, much of the rest of the world says definitively, are you kidding? Right. Of course they would, right? <laughs> Skeptical. And so, the least. so while we have you in just a couple minutes we have left, I have to ask you about the coronavirus and certainly the political implications of it, especially in China, because you wrote about this uh, last week and it feels like this whole notion of the impact on President Xi especially is being talked about a lot now. Well, Remind us what you think. So, you know, we have a, we have a top-down system in China. Uh, and Xi Jinping has concentrated power in his hands beyond any leader since Chairman Mao. And it means that, you know, uh, he ultimately is responsible for this. The story that's been the story that's been coming out has been the initial cover up mm -hmm. that China missed early opportunities. And why is this? You know, why did lower level officials not kick it up? Were they afraid to kick it up because it was too politically sensitive? Were they sitting on their hands waiting for the Chinese leadership to make a decision up in Beijing and then hand it down? Certainly, I think you can say this without any doubt, is that a free media in China would have picked up on these cases and would have had it out there in the public view and in the public mind way earlier on, which would have allowed for a more rapid response. And I'm, I, forgive me, Andy, because I'm going to ask you to be quick, 30 seconds. So is President Xi at risk at all? You He's, know this you know, country better than most. You know, it really depends on how this whole coronavirus plays out. I mean, we don't, we just, there's just so much about it we don't know. I mean, if it all burns out in the next few weeks, look, the government is also doing a great job. They're building hospitals. Right. You know, they've taken decisive action. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a central government that appears to be in control and in command. I think the picture looks very different if this, if this drags on for months, really knocks the Chinese economy, right. really knocks employment, um, and does lasting damage to, you know, salaries and livelihoods. All right. We're going to be talking a lot more to you about about this we know in the coming weeks. Andy Brown, thank you so much. Editorial Director for Bloomberg New Economy here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I'm driving in my car.
I'll turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, it's time now for the drive to the close on an update on the market to bounce back from Friday. What to make of it? All of these different things that we've been trying to synthesize. We're going to put all those questions to Sean Cruz, manager of trader strategy at TD Ameritrade. He joins us on the phone from Jersey City, New Jersey. Sean, great to have you back with us. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. So what a difference, you know, I guess 72 hours makes to some extent with the market, because had we talked to you on Friday when we were in Miami, sort of half watching Super Bowl preparation and half watching a meltdown, it felt very different. What do you make of the trade today? I think markets are really just sort of pulling risk off the table going into the long weekend. We had quite a few items coming out over the week when markets are closed that they probably were just sitting by and saying, you know, things are open again and I can respond to this information yeah. as it comes out. That's when I want to have some of that risk on the table. And so we had a lot of potential news that could have come out about the coronavirus. You also had um, the impeachment trial going on in Capitol Hill. Um, and we also were looking forward to the Shanghai uh, markets finally reopening Monday. And, and then keep in mind, you know, those markets were going to open actually Sunday evening uh, before we actually open here Monday morning. So I think there was just a lot that could potentially come out over the weekend where there was just really no one wanting to step up and take risk. And that's why you just saw this gradual grind lower throughout the session on Friday. But that money looks like it's going back to work today. Yeah, exactly. And I am curious where you're seeing people put money to work. Despite all these things, uh, Sean, that we're worried about, people are still buying and selling stocks pretty aggressively, it seems like. They are, and it, we see that uh, you know not only in our, in our client base, but also if you just look at uh, metrics for, for retail investors across across the industry. Um, but what we see is that during earnings season, there's there's a lot of individual stocks that uh, get traded. We see activity pick up um, in, in some of those names that are coming out and reporting. And what's interesting is really the behavior. So last week, we actually see a lot. We saw a lot of selling in Amazon as it gapped higher, and that was just clients lightening up those positions, um, maybe taking some profits. And they were also doing it a little bit in Tesla as well. So they were sort of selling into that strength. And then on the flip side of that, when Facebook sold off post earnings, we actually saw a little bit of buying interest in that name. So that's that's kind of the ebb and flow for how we see our, our active trader clients trading around earnings, specific names and, and sort of managing their, their risk levels. And that is scaling in on pullbacks and, and then sort of taking profits and, and managing their exposure. On, on strong rallies. So tell me, Amazon, Tesla, were people buying that big time? There, there was quite a bit of interest in Amazon and Tesla throughout the, the month of January, and we didn't see them flip to just completely closing out of their positions. I think what they were doing was just taking some profits when you saw just these massive run-ups. And if you look at Tesla once again today, um, you know, I, I think it, it, there is legitimate buying going on in here. There's a, a story that there's just a lot of short covering. I don't really even think short covering could do uh, something, cause a move like we've seen out of Tesla. I think there's some legitimate buyers coming in and, and pushing Tesla higher. 
And so earnings, you mentioned, uh, you know, specific names. What are the ones, what are the names we should be looking at for some sense of where the consumer is, how investors are generally, generally, excuse me, feeling uh, about the state of the world? Yeah, I think, you know, for when you look at something like that, you want to look at some of the, the companies that have a little bit more of a, a global footprint. Mm-hmm. Um, this week coming out, there are some names that are, that are interesting to us. I don't know that they're necessarily anything you can get a strong read through of what's going on globally. Um, you know, we have Chipotle coming out, yeah. uh, Disney. Um, Google this evening could be something interesting to look at. Um, Qualcomm's coming out later this week, and I think the chip makers have been a very interesting uh, space to follow along with, not just this earnings cycle, but over the past year as they try and work out the supply and demand balances. And if you think about the end use cases for a lot of these chips, it is interesting to see what sort of demand they're seeing in their businesses because they are strong global companies and, and they have a lot of different applications for their chips. So it's always interesting to dig into those reports and see where the strengths and weaknesses out of the, the various business units. All right, got to ask you about Tesla because we've been talking about it all day. Uh, we've been talking about it for the last couple weeks. There was a great cover story. I'm not sure if you saw it in Bloomberg Business Week a couple weeks ago about the shorts getting burned. I mean, they are just getting chicken fried at this point as the stock just goes higher and higher and higher. How do you as a trader read a name like that? So there's something to be said, and there's actually um, – a very popular uh, firm that, that's really a really big short seller even said that they tend to try and stay away from names that sort of have that disruptive feel to them. That, that some of the, the worst, uh, you know, they've gotten burnt the worst on shorting names when they turn out to be disruptive um, and they can actually really achieve some of that growth that gets priced in. And I think Tesla is finally actually starting to really deliver on a lot of those those promises that they, you kind of kept getting the sense that we'll get it next quarter, we'll get it next quarter. They're finally getting the, the factories put up internationally. They got the one put up in Shanghai. Um, they're expecting to make uh, you know similar progress in Germany. And they're starting to hit some of those delivery numbers that for a while, you know, a lot of uh, analysts, and especially a lot of people on the short side, said they would never be able to hit or they'd go bankrupt before they hit those. So I think that story really came undone over over the past month, and you saw a lot of capitulation out of those short sellers, and I think that was the the initial move higher. I think a lot of that was short covering, but now, I, like I said, I think you're getting some legitimate buyers who believe that in, in further upside ability for Tesla, especially if they can get the plant in Europe up and running and, right. and really start adding to capacity. Sean, would you buy Tesla? So if I were going to come in here, I wouldn't maybe go in and buy, go all in and put everything I, I had to work in there right now. If I, say if I wanted to you know, put twenty or $50,000 work in Tesla, maybe don't do it all at once. Scale in a little bit and see if you do get some sort of a pullback here where you can then maybe scale in at a little bit of a lower price. All right. We're going to leave it there. Sean Cruz, Manager of Trader Strategy at TD Ameritrade, joining us on the phone. From Jersey City, New Jersey. What a town. What a town, Jersey City. What a town. What a town. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.